we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. And for this week's episode, we're going to present the presentations from a panel discussion we did this week. The panel is entitled, The Hijacking of Asylum, Responses in the U.S. and Europe. And so we had three speakers from the center, including myself, and then three from the Migration Research Institute which is a think tank in Budapest, which, as the name suggests, is an institute that researches migration. If you prefer to watch the video, it will be online at cis.org at our site, which will have all the question and answer session as well. What we put on the audio was the presentation from each of the six speakers. The first presentation was by Victor Marshai, who is the research director at MRI, the Migration Research Institute in Budapest, And he spoke about the soft underbelly of Europe, specifically the role that asylum plays in the migration flows from the south of Europe, North Africa especially, across the Mediterranean into Europe. During my presentation, I'd like to speak a little bit about the the background uh, of this uh, soft underbelly of uh, Europe, uh, why it's a challenge for Europe as a continent, the European Union as an institution, how we can speak about the instrumentalization or weaponization of irregular migration uh, in the southern flank of uh, Europe and the status of the, the phenomenon now. I think, first of all, it's very important to have a short and quick history overview because history matters. And it's very important that this whole region, the Mediterranean region, and uh, both the northern and the, the southern uh, shores of the Mediterranean belong to one integrated system during the Roman Empire, close, you know, Mar- called Mare Nostrum, you know. And in spite of the collapse of the, the Western Roman Empire in the fifth century, it remained an intact economic and political integration until the, the, the conquer of the Arabs in the ninth century. Later colonization, European colonization, revitalized this connection. And the Second World War demonstrated the, the soft underbelly of uh, Europe called by Winston Churchill. And it was not accidental that the troops of the United States and the Allies uh, started their campaign against Germany, not in the Western Front in Normandy, but in the, the soft underbelly, which was much more uh, vulnerable for these uh, attacks. And recently, last three decades, both NATO and EU uh, concentrated on the region in the form of different partnerships and, and dialogue. So it's very important to keep in our mind that uh, in spite politically now, the northern part and the southern part of uh, the Mediterranean are divided, but in, in many aspects there is close integration between them. Some words about the, the sea borders. It's very important to underline that the protection and the defense of sea borders 
are much more complicated than the defense of the land borders because it's not possible to erect any fence in the mid of the, the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, I, I brought you some numbers. The total length of the Mediterranean Sea is not so big, it's 4,000 kilometers, but if we are watching the seashores and a borderline of different countries, it's a huge, huge challenge to protect them. Just have a look for Greece, which is comparing uh, United States, it's a small country, 100,000 square kilometers, but it has more than 13,000 kilometer long coastline, which have to be protected from illegal migrants. Actually, it's a mission impossible for both uh, Greece, but we have a number from Italy. It's not possible to control so huge sea border areas. About the flow of irregular migration, we saw uh, an increase in the early 20s, mainly from the North Africa. And since the beginning, the blackmailing of EU or certain member states uh, happened in this Mediterranean context. The first country which used it was Libya, and the second was Morocco. Morocco used it to get a fund from the European Union, and, and Libya, you know, in the, 20, in the 90s was in a quarantine and was sanctioned by, by different uh, countries. And uh, Gaddafi used instrumentalized or weaponized irregular migrant to make pressure on Italy and the European Union to came out from the quarantine and uh, became a best boy in the international system. So it's very important because the real question in this context, considering the length of this borderline and the, the blackmailing potential, that how EU can cooperate with these gatekeepers on the southern shore of the Mediterranean and how we can persuade to convince them to stop off the arrivals. Sorry, just some words about the numbers. You can see the, the number of illegal border crossing uh, in the European borders. Comparing with the American uh, data, perhaps it's not so high, because at the peak in uh, 2015, you can see it, it was almost uh, 2 million. And if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was a similar number in the case of the United States, but annually it's between 1 and 2 million. In the case of Europe, it's not so high. Uh, last year was almost 200,000. But what is very important is the, the potential, that how many people were stopped and how many people are waiting for the crossing towards Europe. In Egypt, according to Roth estimations, uh, there are at least uh, 6.5 million foreigners, and many of them want to come to Europe. In Libya, because of civil war, it's very hard to estimate, but there are between 800 and 1.5 million people. And in Turkey, just the Syrian, Iraqian, and Afghanistanian uh, Afghan, sorry, uh, refugees and asylum seekers altogether is 4.5 million people. So if you if you sum up, it's more than 10 million people who somehow would like to to reach Europe, who are foreigners in this country. But it's very important also to emphasize that the, the whole story is not only about these asylum seekers in these countries, but also the citizens of these countries, Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, many of them, millions of them would like to, to, to come to Europe. And if we are checking the numbers in this illegal border crossing uh, numbers, actually the biggest portion of people is coming not from Sub-Saharan Africa, which is a, it's a concept in Europe that now most people coming from Sub-Saharan Africa to Europe in this southern border. No, actually uh, the so-called transit countries from Egypt to Morocco are really the, the countries of origin. 
from illegal migrants and asylum seekers. Also, that according to the, the official estimations and of official data, the Coast Guard of this nation also contribute to stop the number of uh, illegal crossings. So I mentioned you this 200,000 people in last year, but according to rough estimation, another 200,000 people were stopped in the sea. And there are some numbers from, from Morocco and Libya, which were also stopped during the, the crossing. So this is the reason why just 200,000 people reached Europe uh, across this uh, lane. Some words about numbers, uh, about the, the, the certain countries. We can observe two attitudes, uh, some kind of stick and carrots politics toward the European Union and some more closer cooperation. Turkey uh, and Morocco definitely use this uh, stick and carrot politics. If they want to gain something, then they are lifting the, the, the control of the border, which happened last year in Malia when they uh, just watched and, and 8,000 people reached uh, the Spanish enclave in you know, uh, some hours. And it also happened in the case of Turkey in February 2020, when Mr. Erdogan decided that they won't protect anymore the border of uh, Europe. And within days, tens of thousands of people started to flat towards Greece. Fortunately, unfortunately, it was just the time, just before the COVID-19. And when COVID-19 arrived, it was evident for, for Ankara that they had to, to stop this flow because uh, it could cause a lot of harm between the relations. And there are some countries which try to cooperate but uh, a much deeper way. Uh, I think the most important in Egypt, but we, we have to mention currently, it's very important, currently uh, Libya and Tunisia. But we have to keep in our mind also that uh, they have, with the exception of uh, Egypt, if we, we have a look at Tunisia and Libya, they have very limited capacity <clears throat> to stop uh, illegal crossing. And just some words about the potential, what, uh, what countries can get if blackmailing the EU. The new Global Europe initiative for the, the, the next budgetary term of the European Union, the EU will offer almost 80 billion euro for this cooperation, 80 billion euro. You can see the distribution here, and you won't find any words about migration in this context, but if you have a more profound look, you know, this making workplaces, digitalization, tackling climate change is actually aiming to reduce the, the potential of number of arrival. It's a huge, huge amount of money. And the big portion of this money is not fixed. About 60 billion euros for certain projects and 20 billion is just the background for, for any emergency event. So this is the money which can be easily utilized for any actors. And last but not least, I, I, it's very important to, in, the, in the shadow of the Ukrainian war to, to mention the geopolitical competition in the southern flank of Europe, NATO. Turkey, uh, which is playing this stick and carrot politics, has a very strong presence in Libya. And there are many considerations that at one point, perhaps Turkey can play the same game in Libya to opening the border for irregular migrants, what happened in the case uh, Turkey. We have to mention the increasing Russian presence uh, across economic groups and Wagner groups, the mercenary groups in uh, Libya and Mali. And we, we shouldn't forget the whole Sahelian cases, which has come closer and closer to Europe. And I mentioned that currently mostly North African peoples coming, but uh, considering the huge uh, humanitarian and economic and political crisis in the Sahel, it's, there, there's a definitely shift in the last Years, so actually, Europe has no other chance to try to cooperate somehow to with these gatekeepers, which uh, which is ready to blackmail it if they don't get enough money. Thank you.
The second speaker is Todd Benzman. He's the Senior National Security Fellow here at the Center for Immigration Studies. And he talked about the tie between asylum and terrorist infiltration, about how terrorist groups and individuals have used asylum policy and asylum claims as a way of getting into Europe and the United States. I'm going to talk about the nexus between asylum and homeland security or national security, and there most certainly is one, both in Europe and in the United States, and they're kind of the same. We have deep-seated systemic flaws, structural flaws in the asylum processes in both regions that enable various actors to penetrate into countries and conduct attacks. That could be uh, terrorists and uh, particularly in Europe and also, you know, MS-13 gangsters crossing our own border uh, that are able to, to exploit these structural flaws and make their way into the country and do their thing. Uh, luckily, we, we have a uh, perfect laboratory experiment that we can study and learn from in Europe, particularly from the 2014 to 2018 mass migration crisis, which we at CIS were able to study and uh, we produced some, some information about this. Uh, really, there are two issues structurally with this. One is that the asylum systems, which, by the way, they're very similar across the developed world, the way they work and what the thresholds are for people to claim asylum, crossing the border, and then to wait inside the host countries. One is that there are, especially during mass migration events or emergencies, that it builds backlogs that are incapable of maintaining connection with the migrants for months and years at a time, which enables them to then be able to plot and kill. And two is that the, the asylum systems are not built in any way to detect fraud and to detect a potential problem with, with a migrant. They're more built to usher people in to the host countries and, and let them let this, the system work. And any kind of a problem would have to be serendipitously caught by intelligence agencies or law enforcement, or maybe somebody just uh, phoning in a tip, see something, say something. Uh, so those, those are the two ways. And what we studied in Europe was the a particular time frame from 2014 to 2018, which was you know, the period of a mass migration event, uh, we had, you know, several million migrants cross through borders and reach the interior of, you know, Germany and France and, uh, you know, the, the, you know, Finland and Sweden and everywhere else in, in the UK. And then after that, we saw a range of very bloody terror attacks by these migrants. Uh, nobody really took the time to you know, quantify how many, uh, so we, we took a stab at it at CIS. So we looked at in that period, and of course, uh, this is maybe a year and a half, uh, a couple of years ago. So migrants who crossed the border into Europe have continued to attack from one end of the continent to the other without much pause. 
So there are a lot more, but still, I think the findings are holding pretty well. So um, I'll take a, a quick stab at some of the numbers here for you to just kind of give you an idea. But first, understand that the common European asylum system at this time allowed for a recommended six months to from entry to adjudication. About six months was the typical. I don't think it was a requirement. But in the mass migration that followed, that number moved to about 11 months on average. And that's not including the appeals processes afterwards. So the appeals processes could extend that far, far beyond the 11 months. And of course, the 11 months is plenty of time to plot and attack. So what we looked at was the period, uh, the amount of the time lapse between entry and either attack or arrest, because thankfully not all of these individuals were able to succeed in their attacks. This is actually an interactive map. If you go to our website, you can, you can click on any one of these, but it gives you a pretty good idea of where a lot of it happened. And of course, it's gonna be where the most migrants were settled, resettled in Germany and France. Uh, we have the Paris attacks of November, 2019, and then the Brussels attacks a few months later. And those were all conducted by either European citizens who were had been in Syria who were posing as migrants with fake IDs, or they were actually ISIS operatives of other countries who applied for asylum and got in and took their good time, a couple months to uh, get the weapons together and all the rest. So let me just, what we were able to look at of the 104 identified, there was only really good data on about 55 of them to be able to, to reach uh, conclusions. And here's a couple data points for you. Uh, we found that in 33 of the cases, the time that elapsed between entry and arrest or attack exceeded the European Union's six months adjudication period. In 15 of those cases, the time lapse was more than twice that, exceeding 15 months. And in 13 of the cases, the time lapse was 19 to 31 months. In other words, when there are backlogs in the asylum system on the back end, after they've already in entered, then there are, is this incredible opportunity to exploit that system and conduct attacks. 35 individuals who were involved in actual attacks were known to have applied for asylum or refugee status. There are also, it's not just asylum, there's, there, there are similar uh, international protections. The processes are very similar. It's refugee status and there are some supplemental ones as well. The average time in country for those 35 was 10.9 months before they attacked. Also, it's, it's worth noting that 22 of these were apprehended and arrested while they were inside asylum refugee camps still. They were still fresh enough in the process that they were still living in the centers. The other issue here is that, that asylum systems don't detect fraud. You can come in and just say, my name is Mickey Mouse in Europe or here and uh, you know, unless they catch you with the biometrics, then you are pretty much in with your fake ID and um, whoever you said you were, unless there were some biometrics. In the United States, we're, we've gotten better at tagging people on their biometrics, but in the European context, when you had millions of people, they were just waving people through the turnstile. So 
None of that stuff was happening. None of these systems in, in Europe can account for a single apprehension or arrest or uh, foiling of a plot, not a single one. In the United States, it's, it's a very similar circumstance. We have, it's not quite as bad, but when you have a mass migration like the one that we're suffering through right now, all of those systems are off the rails. Nothing is normal. The axis is shifted uh, completely in, in times like these. The next speaker is Sabolch Janik. He's the operations director at MRI in Budapest. And what he focused on was a more recent event where the dictator of Belarus used migrants from the Middle East and Africa and pushed them into Poland and Lithuania as a kind of revenge against the EU for sanctions and other actions they were taking against him, essentially weaponizing migration flows and using asylum against the EU. Now we talk about today the situation at the Belarus-EU border. And these events started last summer, if you go back in time. Some words about the background of the situation. There was a presidential election held in Belarus in in the summer of 2020, which was won, of course, by Mr. Lukashenko, uh, which was a clear case of uh, election fraud. Protests followed in the country, all across the country, which uh, was followed by violent oppression by the regime. There were mass arrests, more than 35,000 people were arrested at that time, and many people left the country, actually. And if we proceed in time, we can uh, go to May last year when the, the regime forced on the ground the Ryanair flight with an opposition activist journalist on board who was later arrested by the, the Lukashenko regime. And uh, in the meantime, the EU responded with the well-known sanction policy in five rounds to date. These include travel bans, asset freezes for leading state officials of the Belarus regime, businessmen, companies, etc. You can see the numbers altogether. Uh, nearly 200 individuals and nearly 20 uh, legal entities were sanctioned. Furthermore, the planes from Belarus from, were bre- banned from EU airspace and airports. And in addition, there were also some export bans uh, imposed, freezing of loan disbursements to Belarus, for instance, by the uh, European Investment Bank. All projects ongoing were suspended. And the result was a total loss of uh, Lukashenko's remaining legitimacy in the West, as well as a political and economic isolation of the regime, which, which were very embarrassing for Lukashenko personally. And what was Lukashenko's response to all this? Well, an artificially generated migration crisis along its border with EU countries in order to exert pressure on the EU and the Western uh, world. And in practice, this meant an import of more than 10,000 migrants, predominantly from the Middle East, Iraq, but also North and Sub-Saharan Africa and some uh, South Asian countries. And we can describe this whole response as a cynical revenge with strategic concessions on the, on the part of Lukashenko. And in order to demonstrate this, I, I brought you a quote from Lukashenko. We will not hold anyone back. We are not their final destination after all. They are headed to the enlightened, warm, cozy Europe which I think is a very, very cynical sentence from the president. How did this look like in practice, this Lukashenko model, let's say? First, uh, migrants were recruited and informed 
in uh, key sending regions, including Iraqi Kurdistan, for instance. Then they changed legislation in Belarus uh, in order to provide a visa for these people more easily than before. And when, when these uh, people obtained visa, they could legally travel to the country, to Belarus, uh, with commercial flights, just every one of uh, us. They were later accommodated in the capital Minsk, and uh, they were uh, transported to, the, to an EU border section in the first time to Lithuanian border, Latvian border, and later to the Polish border. And they, these people were provided continuous support uh, in, order, in order to be able to cross uh, the EU border illegally. These were uh, carried out by the, the soldiers, the authorities, who accompanied them along their way to the border. And we have to add that uh, this meant uh, pretty high profits for all the players involved, like state-owned companies, regime-affiliated businesses, like travel agencies, etc. And this, this amount could reach uh, up to uh, $10,000 or even more per migrant, which is a huge amount of money. I've already touched upon the, the response by the EU, but what did these uh, member states respond? For instance, in Lithuania, uh, the first country to be heavily affected by the event, uh, introduced a state of emergency in the border region of the country. They started to build a reception center for a uh, thousand people. There was also an increase in Frontex staff active in the country, in the border region. And most importantly, they decided to erect a fence of 500 kilometers, which uh, mainly covers the whole border section with Belarus. And as for the statistics part, we could see more than 5,000 apprehensions in total, uh, which is a very uh, high number for this small Baltic country compared to previous year's data. Poland was another country highly affected by the, the Belarus crisis. A state of emergency was also introduced here, and uh, more than 1,000 soldiers were deployed at the border in order to protect the Belarus-Poland uh, border. And of course, an, uh, the erection of uh, border fence was also, also uh, decided here, which is, uh, as you can see, shorter than the Lithuanian one, but still it's a, it's a very long, nearly uh, 200 kilometers long uh, fence. And Poland uh, followed another tactics and uh, they kind of uh, legalized pushbacks. They changed legislation in order to keep migrants uh, out and uh, preventing them from crossing their border illegally, which of course triggered harsh criticism on the side of human rights NGOs. And uh, what made their situation even worse was the, the continuous provocation on the side of the Belarus authorities and soldiers. They used laser pointers uh, through rocks at the Polish uh, border guards or, or even assisted migrants to break through the fence and uh, get onto the EU side of the borders, which is, which is I think, crazy and a, a clear attack on the sovereignty of Poland in this case. Here you can see some pictures. On the left, you can see the, the construction works of the fence in Lithuania, as far as I can remember. And on the right, there's something interesting. We found this uh, text on, on the social media, and you can see how, how the Polish authorities informed those approaching the Polish border the migrants received an automated uh, text message on their phones with this text. The Polish border is sealed. Belarus authorities told the lies. Go back to Minsk. Don't take any pills from Belarusian soldiers because it was suspected that they drugged these people so they can be more uh, easily transported to the border and kind of thrown 
uh, onto the EU side. So I, I think this is crazy and insane. But the Polish authorities still try their best in order to keep these people out. And if you look at the academic part of the story, we can refer to, for instance, Kelly M. Greenhill, who discussed uh, the uh, weaponization of migrants to pursue strategic goals by uh, international powers and countries. And also, uh, Victor also referred to these examples, which I, I wrote in my slide, Morocco uh, two times, Turkey uh, in recent years. And you can see the, the most recent example of uh, instrumentalizing migrants, which was Morocco last year, unleashing 8,000 migrants on Spain in retaliation for admitting Brahim Ghali, leader of Polisario Front, Morocco's rival in Western Sahara, for medical treatment in Madrid. So it was kind of a revenge step from uh, the Moroccan government. And in this regard, we can call Lukashenko's action uh, the most systematic and overt example of weaponizing migrants for strategic objectives. And who knows whether this story in Belarus and the eastern border of Europe is over. We will see. The next speaker was Christoph Veresh. He's the Andrasi National Security Fellow at Migration Research Institute and is a visiting fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. And he talked about the response of the member states of the EU and of the EU itself to these specific examples of the weaponization of migration. So before talking about the EU responses uh, to the instrumentalization of migration, first I want to talk about our beautiful fence in Hungary on the southern border. In 2015, uh, when uh, the Syrian uh, migration crisis reached uh, the southern border of Hungary, Hungary decided to erect uh, a fence. First, it was just a rapid deployed concerting wire by the military. And afterwards, it almost took like a year to build the fence that we have now and the fence that you might have seen on Tucker Carson, which is a double fence uh, reinforced with sensors and, and uh, cameras. Hungary received uh, international condemnation for uh, constructing a physical barrier on its southern border, and the EU uh, refused to, to provide funding for it so far. The cost of the wall was 1 billion US dollars. That doesn't might not sound much to you, but actually that was the amount that Hungary spent uh, on its defense budget in 2015. So it's like another defense budget. And then we are not counting the efforts by the authorities, the police and the Hungarian defense force to construct this fence. They were working 24 seven. And then the maintenance costs and also the fact that the fence has to be guarded, which is done by the police and by the Hungarian defense force. Also, Hungary uh, set up some legal barriers, which transformed in a way the rolling pastures of Serbia into an insurmountable cliff. The most important uh, piece of the legislation package was the idea of safe third countries. The previous panel touched upon uh, asylum shopping. So the safe third country uh, introduced by the, by the Hungarian government uh, postulated that if you are fleeing war, then you have to apply for asylum in the first safe country that you are not subject to persecution. These measures uh, received again condemnation and in November 2021, the European Court of Justice found that Hungary infringed on EU law by uh, passing this legislation because uh, they said that uh, Hungary uh, restricted access to asylum. 
And now I'm going to move on to the EU response first to the 2015 uh, Syrian migration crisis. We touched upon in the previous panel on the Dublin regulation. The Dublin uh, regulation postulates that the first country where asylum seekers enter the EU, they either have to provide permanent haven to them or turn them back, which shifts the costs of uh, asylum entirely to frontline countries. Also, uh, the previous panel uh, touched upon it. The biggest problem is the Schengen area. How do you enforce the Dublin regulation in the Schengen area? I think Sabolt said that most of the asylum seekers who filed asylum applications in Hungary uh, later moved on to uh, better honeypot countries like, uh, like for example, Germany or, uh, or the Netherlands. So frontline countries um, at some point in 2015 decided that the best way to do is to just wave refugees through. That's what Greece was doing because um, the Greek government figured that if they don't register asylum seekers, then they can't be turned back to their country. And anyway, uh, those asylum seekers don't want to stay in Greece. And now the EU response. The EU response was precipitated by Chancellor Angela Merkel's uh, declaration, the famous Wir schaffen das uh, speech in late August uh, 2015, when uh, he said on behalf of the German government that they are going to suspend the application of the Dublin regulation and they are going to allow all asylum seekers who reach Germany to apply for asylum there. Then when the asylum application skyrocketed in Germany, then the German government turned to the EU to help them and the European Commission uh, came up with this uh, splendid uh, reallocation scheme where they wanted to reallocate 160,000 refugees from Greece and from Italy to other EU countries. Uh, the objection of five governments, including Hungary, was overruled in the European Council. But after that, defection started quickly. Basically, uh, a large number of EU states uh, just sabotaged the implementation of this plan. One year after uh, the passage of the Commission proposal, only 5% of asylum seekers uh, were reallocated. After this, the EU turned uh, to another uh, other measure, which was um, to bribe gatekeeper countries. The most important being Turkey, where uh, the EU signed in 2016 an agreement with the Turkish government, where the EU would provide funding not to the Turkish government, but refugees and groups uh, that take care of refugees uh, in Turkey. And in exchange, Turkey would prevent those asylum seekers uh, to continue their journey uh, towards Europe. The price tag on this project between 2016 and 2024 is 10 billion US dollars with no end in sight. Sabolc um, touched upon the fact that Turkey tried to blackmail the EU in February 2020, uh, where they said, if, they basically said, okay, if they don't give us more money, then we are going to just let them continue. And it was the harsh uh, enforcement first approach of the Greek authorities uh, that uh, thwarted uh, this push in 2020. And then COVID came around and all the borders got shut anyway. If we assess the EU response uh, to the 2015 crisis, we can see that the EU was permanently weakened. Its uh, mechanisms and rules were repeatedly ignored by member states. The authority of the European Commission was undermined and the Schengen area was de facto dismantled when the member states reintroduced border controls between each other. And also, Europe's border controls were outsourced on humiliating terms uh, to non-EU states. Now moving on to the 2021 Belarus-Polish-Lithuanian uh, uh, border crisis, 
Sobolch explained what uh, Poland and Lithuania was doing. So now I'm going to just talk about the EU response. A huge amount of solidarity flowed uh, to Poland from um, Brussels. But what was even more surprising is that the European Commission in December 2021 uh, came out with a new proposal that would chip away at the rights of asylum seekers if a member state is faced with an instrumentalization of migration. These uh, frontier states, according to this new proposal, would be allowed uh, to restrict access to asylum uh, only at designated locations, meaning border crossings. And also they would be allowed to detain asylum seekers for um, up to 16 weeks while the substance and admissibility of their claim is being decided on the border. In EU law, now it's only four weeks. This um, substance and admissibility uh, assessment is like the credible fear assessment in the, in the US. <clears throat> but you are still not supposed to detain asylum seekers while their real claim is decided by the courts, and you're still not supposed to just push them back. So my point is, is that what the Polish and uh, Lithuanian governments were doing still uh, went much, much further than what the EU proposed in uh, December, but it's most certainly a, a step in the right direction. And now, uh, finally, Ukraine. Because uh, now, uh, with uh, Russia's uh, barbaric invasion, the EU finally managed to have a unified response to an unparalleled uh, refugee situation. It's important to note that Ukrainians can enter uh, the EU without visa and they can stay for 90 days. But the EU also managed to activate its so-called temporary protection directive, which is nothing to do with the American uh, TPS uh, system. Now, everyone uh, coming from Ukraine, that includes legal residents and uh, Ukrainian nationals as well, have uh, a temporary protected status in all European countries for up to three years without having to apply for the complex and ponderous asylum procedure. This directive was, was passed with a unanimous vote in the European Council. Those countries that, had, uh, that has been very harsh on uh, irregular migration, like, uh, like Hungary and Poland, also uh, supported the measure. But the problem with the temporary protection directive is Again, uh, Schengen and uh, voluntary redistribution, because the temporary protection directive postulates that based on uh, mutual solidarity, the 27 member states of the European Union are going to distribute uh, Ukrainians. Now there is no political uh, role about it because everyone uh, agreed at the European level that this is what we need to do in this refugee crisis. But the problem is how do you enforce this in Schengen? Again, a Ukrainian uh, gets uh, redistributed to uh, Bulgaria or Romania, and then he can just say, that's not fair. I want to go to Germany. Uh, there is absolutely no way to stop them uh, to going to, to Germany and get to work there um, illegally. We'll see what's going to happen. But I personally think that it's, it's a great uh, feat on the European Union's part that we managed to have a unified uh, response uh, speaking with one voice in this uh, unparalleled refugee crisis, which is unfolding uh, on the border of the EU. The next speaker is Andrew Arthur, Art Arthur. He's a resident fellow in law and policy at CIS. If you follow our blog, you'll see he's a frequent contributor to our blog at CIS.org. And what he talked about was the Biden administration's actions, not in tightening up an asylum, but in expanding asylum, things they've already done, and also proposals. 
the Biden administration has made to loosen asylum rules further. One of the terms that we've heard used a lot today is the word asylum seeker. Uh, Chris just used it a number of times. Under international law, in order to be eligible for asylum, you need to uh, either have faced actual persecution in the past or have well-founded fear of future persecution on account of one of five grounds, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. General conditions of disorder don't count. States of war don't count. In order to be granted asylum, you actually have to show that you have been persecuted. And that's a very uh, extreme concept under U.S. law in order to be eligible. And yet in FY 2021, we had 1.659 million individuals enter the United States illegally at the southwest border. And most of them were deemed asylum seekers. The fact is probably most of them aren't really seeking asylum and most of them probably don't have asylum claims. Let me explain to you how that works under U.S. law. Aliens who entered the United States illegally or without proper documents are supposed to be subject to what's called expedited removal. They can be quickly removed from the United States without appearing before an immigration judge, without getting an order of removal. We just send them back home. There is an exception to the expedited removal process, however, where a migrant says either they want asylum or states the fact that they have a fear of being returned home. If that happens under U.S. law, they then get interviewed by an asylum officer at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to determine whether they have a credible fear, another uh, term that Chris used. Credible fear is a screening standard to determine whether somebody may be eligible for asylum. The asylum standard isn't actually that high. As low as a 10% chance of being persecuted back home is enough to get you asylum. This is something that is below that 10% level. Between FY 2008 and FY 2019, about 83% of all aliens who claimed credible fear were found to actually have credible fear. That means only about 17% were found not to have credible fear. At the end of the day, however, only about 17% of those individuals were actually granted asylum. Let me explain to you how that process works. If an asylum officer determines that somebody does have a credible fear, they're then placed into removal proceedings before an immigration judge, person who uh, was like me and I heard a number of asylum cases from credible fear. At that hearing, there is a government attorney who can offer contrary evidence, who can challenge and cross-examine the alien. Judge makes a decision. The alien can appeal an adverse decision. The government attorney can appeal an asylum grant for that asylee. Under U.S. law, every person that enters the United States is illegally is supposed to be detained, detained from the moment that they are apprehended until they're removed or granted asylum. Again, throughout the entire expedited removal process, throughout the entire credible fear process. In 2010, however, the, Biden, or the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration, decided that they were going to unilaterally and administratively change that rule. They instituted a rule that said that if you had passed credible fear, that you would be allowed into the United States on a very limited authority called parole. Nobody challenged this at the time because nobody really thought that it was a big deal. Well, it turned out to be a big deal. In 2009, before the Obama administration changed that rule, 5,325 individuals claimed credible fear. By FY 2019, that had increased 19-fold to 105,439. Aliens knew that if they claimed credible fear, they were probably going to have a pretty good shot that uh, they would receive a positive credible fear determination and that they would be released. So it created a pull factor that brought individuals to the United States to claim asylum. Again, 
Most of these folks did not have asylum. Many of those claims were just no good. In fact, in 32.5% of all cases in which people claimed that they had a credible fear of removal, the alien never showed up for court. This is just an example of how this system has been abused, and this is the system that we have in, in place right now. The Biden administration has actually offered some proposals to change this system that's going to weaken it even more. In August 2021, in the Federal Register, the Biden administration published a proposal that would take the authority for adjudicating those asylum cases away from immigration judges as a preliminary matter and give it to asylum officers. Under the law right now, if an asylee is going to apply for asylum, they have to file a government form, I-589. It's not terribly complicated. It is a little bit long. And it asks what exactly the basis of the fear is. So the immigration judge adjudicates that. The Biden administration wants to waive that asylum application rule. And you're probably wondering why they would do that. Why do you want to just have them not file an application? What they want to do is when you go in to talk to the asylum officer, and by the way, there's no government attorney at that uh, hearing. It's just an informal interview. It's a conversation. In fact, it's specifically non-adversarial. And asylum officers are taught how to make that non-adversarial. Don't contest anything that they say. Just listen to them. Have a conversation. Biden administration wants to uh, take that protection away. Also, there's no government attorney to appeal that decision if the asylum officer makes a wrong one. If they grant somebody asylum erroneously, that person just gets asylum. There's not going to be an appeal from that. But why exactly would the Biden administration take away the requirement that those individuals file asylum applications? They're actually pretty straightforward about that. Under U.S. law, if you don't file an asylum application within one year, you're not eligible for asylum. The Biden administration wants to make sure that none of those people are barred under the one-year bar. So as soon as you sit down and talk to the asylum officer, you've made your application. The other reason is, under U.S. law, you have to wait anywhere between 180 days and 360 days after you've made your asylum application to get employment authorization. The Biden administration is explicit about the fact that they want to make sure that these folks can get their employment authorization as quickly as possible. By the way, I said that immigration judges no longer have adjudication of those asylum applications, but that's only true as a preliminary matter. If the asylum officer denies that alien asylum, they can then appeal that decision to an immigration judge who's going to get a bunch of notes just like this from an asylum officer and try to put together what exactly the asylum claim is. If the immigration judge denies the application, the alien then has the opportunity to apply to the Board of Immigration Appeals. Then if they deny, they could file a petition for uh, review with the circuit courts. Right now, it takes 2.45 years on average throughout the United States for an alien to even get a hearing date. Under this proposal, that is just going to be expanded because more people are going to come in expecting that they're going to you know, have the opportunity to have a quick uh, decision by an asylum officer. Probably many of them will, maybe many of them won't. It's just going to encourage more people. You're going to get more people coming in. There's only about 580 immigration judges so that their time is going to be taken up hearing nothing but border cases. That's not the only idea that the Biden administration has, however. Remember, I said everybody's supposed to be detained. Under a leaked proposal, the Biden administration wants to set up reception centers at the southwest border. That's a place that migrants could go to. They will be given medical care, dental care, psychological care. They'll have the opportunity to uh, have their kids educated, and they can come and go as they please. Biden administration purportedly is planning on releasing many of those people just 
plane flat out the door, and those that they do track will be released on alternatives to detention. There are 180,000 people in the United States currently under alternatives to detention. By the way, when we talk about asylum seekers in the United States, people who have actually filed asylum applications. Right now, there are 623,000 pending asylum applications before those 580 immigration judges. That's on top of 400,000 other asylum applications that are pending with asylum officers in the United States. More than a million people are actually applying for asylum in the United States right now. Again, reception centers, these individuals won't be detained. They're gonna be non-carceral, as they say. They'll be able to come and go as they please. That's just going to encourage even more people to come illegally. Then there's a delayed proposal. We know it's out there, we just don't know what it is. Remember I said race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion, the only five bases for asylum. Membership in a particular social group isn't defined anywhere. Judge Alito, before he uh, got to the Supreme Court, said a particular social group can be any group of two or more people whatsoever. Individuals will say that I'm a member of a particular social group of women who don't believe in living under a patriarchal structure in Central America. It can be cab drivers who don't agree with fare rates. It can be individuals who are completely neutral against the cartels. It could be individuals who have spoken against cartels. So, you know, this is a vulnerability, but thanks to U.S. law, we've really narrowed this a whole lot. It has to be visible. It has to be recognized in society. You can't just come to court and make up a group so that you can receive asylum. We know, however, that the Biden administration is planning on watering down that standard. How do we know that? President Biden on February the 5th issued Executive Order 14,010 in which he directed DHS and the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, to review the definition of particular social group. Again, we have a standard, we have a rule, but the Biden administration wants that to be reviewed. We know that it's not going to make that rule tighter because Attorney General Merrick Garland has already, using authority that he's granted under U.S. law, watered down that rule. Then Attorney General Sessions under the Trump administration had said in most cases, individuals who are claiming fear of harm because of common criminality, because they were mugged or they're threatened or they're being threatened because they were witnesses to a crime, those individuals aren't generally eligible for asylum. Attorney General Sessions also said domestic violence is a horrible thing, but it doesn't really fit any of those five uh, factors for asylum relief. Attorney General Garland has reversed that decision as well. So when you take all of this as a whole, when you take 1.659 million people entering illegally, when you take this proposal to give asylum officers the ability to adjudicate asylum, the erection of reception centers, and then a watering down of the asylum standard, what you're going to do is you will have a million people show up illegally every year, and you're not gonna have an immigration problem you're going to have an asylum processing system that will usher 1 million people plus into the United States every year. So literally, it will take what is currently against the law and make it a process to enter the United States illegally. What should be expedited will become the exception that swallows the rule. And I was the final speaker, and I spoke more broadly about how asylum as it exists today is an anachronism. It's an idea whose time has passed. It was conceived of in the immediate aftermath of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War. And I discussed what approaches we might take in 
creating an asylum policy that's more consistent with today's circumstances. What I wanted to do is look at the idea of asylum as it exists. And the first point I'd want to make is that the instrumentalization, the weaponization of migration, we've talked about who is it that has instrumentalized it, who's used migration as a weapon. Victor and Sabolch talked about various countries and governments using migration. The Weapons of Mass Migration was the book that Sabolch had referred to. Todd talked about terrorists and terrorist organizations using migration as a tool. But there's a third group, and that is domestic organizations, domestic interests in the receiving countries that are basically post-national to be charitable or anti-national to maybe be more accurate that use migration as a kind of, and use asylum specifically, as a kind of crowbar to pry open the borders of the countries, the borders that they do not accept as legitimate. And so this really highlights the urgency of revisiting the very concept of asylum. Asylum as it is, exists now creates a right to enter a country that the citizens of that country have no right to reject. This is an inversion of the way immigration policy ought to be working and the way we think it does work, but it doesn't. Uh, last year was the 70th anniversary of the United Nations Treaty relating to refugees. The convention, it's called the Convention Relating to the Status of Refugees. It was a post-World War II, beginning of the Cold War artifact. It dealt with, it sought to deal with the immediate problem that existed in the wake of the Nazi and Soviet aggressions in Central and Eastern Europe. The original convention, 1951, was confined to Europe. There was a corollary convention called the Protocol. It's a, again, it's a treaty that expanded those rules to the whole rest of the world. President Truman did not sign the 1951 Refugee Convention precisely because it was a restriction. It introduced this concept, this subversive concept, really, of restricting American sovereignty. However, the 1967 follow-on, the corollary of it, called the Protocol, was signed by President Johnson's administration in 1968. It was confirmed by the Senate in 1969, and then in 1980, it was formally incorporated into American law. It was, at the time, a sideshow almost. In other words, it was a minor matter. It was, there's only a little bit of an exaggeration to say that it was a uh, latter version of what, for those of you who know about diplomatic history, the Kellogg-Briand Pact in the 1920s outlawed war. That really worked out great. Um, <laughs> But it was, it was mocked, even by the people who signed it, as an international kiss. Well, in a sense, the refugee protocol, when the United States signed it, was in fact kind of seen almost as an international kiss. It only applied to a handful of people. At that point, the immediate aftermath of World War II had obviously passed. So it was basically for Russian ballerinas who were defecting. That was, that was kind of what it was. And in the 1970s, in the United States, before we formally put the provisions into our law in 1980, in the 1970s, 
we had an average of two or 3,000 asylum applications a year. So that's more than the occasional Russian ballerina, but not much more. It was not considered a, a, an issue to really be worried about. Well, as Art pointed out, we're now talking about hundreds of thousands of people using asylum as a way of getting to the United States. It's choking our immigration courts. The same thing is happening in Europe. This is because we live in a completely different context. The world has changed. Communications and transportation has become rapid and much simpler and easier. There's been a, a complete inversion of the population relationship between the kinds of places that would send people who were asylum seekers now have ballooned in population. The places that people want to go to now make a much smaller share of global population. Europe is obviously going to be facing this problem in a dramatic way. It's sitting on top of Africa, which is going to have 4 billion people at the end of this century. And there obviously are regulatory tweaks that can be made. Christoph talked about some of the changes, you know, not only the Dublin regulation, but then things that are tightening up on that. Art talked about the, the changes we're making going in the other direction, but there were, in fact, methods that we had used in the U.S. to tighten up on immigration. Some were on the asylum issue. Some were passed in the 1996 immigration law, which tightened up immigration across the board, but also in the prior administration. The attorney general established some new precedents for what qualifies for asylum, what doesn't. So that there are various regulatory ways of tightening the system. The problem is that those can always be changed and will be changed, as we've seen from one administration to another, a kind of ping-ponging of policy where the Biden administration has sought to pretty much undo everything the previous administration did, including, as Art laid out, a dramatic expansion and loosening of asylum. So my contention is that there's no way for the developed world to regain control of its borders without scrapping the entire asylum system as we have it. The refugee convention and protocol are anachronisms. The treaty, the original treaty, the convention was signed a lifetime ago. The world has utterly changed and we need either an entirely new international legal structure for dealing with asylum or arguably dispensing with it altogether and returning it to individual nations deciding on how they're going to deal with this issue of asylum if they want to or not. For instance, the Refugee Convention, Article 31 of the treaty, says that an illegal immigrant has to be considered for asylum so long as he has come directly from the country where he is experiencing the persecution. Well, that often does not happen. That's what asylum shopping is about. At our border, we have people from Haiti who lived in Chile and then crossed through, I'm not even sure, I'd look at a map, uh, 12 different countries to get to the United States. They weren't being persecuted. No Haitian in Chile was being persecuted in Chile, nor in Peru, nor in Ecuador, nor in Colombia, if I'm getting my map right, let me, nor in Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, maybe Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico. Well, the Refugee Convention does not mandate that that person be considered for asylum because he has not come directly from the country of his persecution, and yet that's the way our law does it. That's the way our law 
deals with it. Nonetheless, it seems to me in international law, forum shopping has to be prohibited, has to be made illegal, at least in domestic law, arguably in international law. Likewise, uh, the definition of persecution, I think, needs to be dramatically narrowed so that past persecution should not count. I mean, if the idea of sending someone back home, the, obviously the fear is, well, that they're going to be locked up, they're going to be killed, whatever it is. Well, that's a real issue. That's something we should consider. But if it happened in the past and there isn't, it isn't likely to happen in the future, the regime has changed, what have you, there's, that should not be a basis. This literally should not be a basis for, for an asylum grant. Um, as Art suggested, the likelihood of that persecution, the bar is set pretty low. I don't think 10% is written in the law, but, but, it's, but that's, it's that, in other words, it's a very low likelihood. Well, sorry, but if we are going to surrender sovereignty, which is what asylum represents, it is a surrender of sovereignty, the likelihood of persecution must be much higher than simply a sort of offhand 10% likelihood of it. The Supreme Court did say that. Okay, they actually said yeah. 10%. Okay, well, um, it's not still not really law, but I guess it is now because whatever the judges say uh, somehow turns into law. But the basic point is, to finish up and we'll take questions, is that asylum policy needs to be made in the national interest. It cannot be a rights issue. Moving from one sovereign state to another needs to be an issue of privilege where the receiving state has complete authority to say no. Politically, they can set up whatever arrangement they want, but it has to be a matter up to the people who live in that country. And this is especially true in self-government because what asylum represents is a kind of subversion of self-government because the people of the United States or of any European democracy under current international arrangements do not have the right to say no to certain people and that cannot be allowed to persist. We were able to live with that for many years because it simply wasn't a challenge. It was never really, we were never faced with the consequences of it. Now we are, and we need to return admission to our respective countries as purely a privilege that we grant, not as a right that people exercise against us. If you want to see the video version of the panel discussion, which included some Q&A discussion as well, you can go to our website at cis.org. You can also register there to be on our occasional email alerts list. And if you are listening to this podcast via one of the platforms for podcasts, whether it's Spotify or Google Podcasts or what have you, if your platform allows you to rate the podcast or to comment, we encourage you to do so. And in any case, feel free to send any comments, criticisms, compliments, what have you, directly to me at msk, that's Mark Stephen Krikorian, msk at cis.org. Thank you. <laughs>